Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the mayors of 15 cities in Fulton County are at odds with the county regarding how Fulton's sales tax revenue is split. It's $3 billion worth in local option sales tax, referred to as lost revenues. Now, coming up later in the program, I'll speak with East Point Mayor Dina Holliday-Ingram and Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul. Also, as a new term begins for the Supreme Court of the United States, later this month, the justice will hear arguments in separate lawsuits against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, both challenging affirmative action policies. Georgia State Law Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks dissects arguments on both sides. The court made the observation that discrimination, whether it is for the purpose of harming and excluding or for the purpose of creating an opportunity, is still going to be subject to what's called strict scrutiny. And that is the most exacting constitutional scrutiny where they take a very close look at it. Important conversations coming up. But first, lots of health and wellness news to get to. Statewide candidates are making their pitches to the disability community ahead of next month's elections. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali says some candidates are working harder than others to to address the concerns of advocates. A handful of candidates made their way to the Decatur Conference Center and Hotel to speak at a recent candidate forum. Others appeared virtually, some recorded their statements, and some didn't appear at all. One issue advocates wanted addressed is a federal program that allows employers to pay workers with disabilities they say affects their productivity below the $7.25 an hour minimum wage. Charlie Miller with the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities hosted the forum. I don't know anyone in the state of Georgia that, that can live in the community, pay rent, pay taxes, and then also be paid below the minimum wage in Georgia. Miller says solutions include the federal government ending the program called 14C or the state of Georgia joining 13 other states in banning the practice. That issue was put to two major candidates for U.S. Senate. Here's Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock in a produced video. What kind of country are we if we don't do all we can to ensure that Georgians with disabilities can not only access a job, but get paid fair wages or days Republican challenger Herschel Walker's whole video was eight seconds and did not address any specific issue. Hi, this is Herschel Walker. I want everyone to know I will always be a champion for anyone in the disabled disability community. God bless. While some advocates in the room were not happy with some of the answers, Miller says the disability community being noticed by candidates is an important step. Raul Valley, WABE News. And in other health news, today, Wellstar's Atlanta Medical Center will begin sending patients to other emergency agencies. That's as the shutdown of AMC in the Old Fourth Ward draws near. Now, Wellstar Health System announced it's closing the hospital in November, but its critical emergency department is closing even sooner, October 14th. The departure will leave an already overwhelmed Grady Memorial as Atlanta's only level one trauma center. Wellstar executive cite in a statement that Atlanta patients will have access to excellent emergency services at Grady and that patients will also continue to have access at Emory University Hospital, Piedmont and Emory Decatur hospitals within 70 miles of AMC. A veterans group finds a number of military veterans who take their own lives is higher than official federal estimates. The group is holding an event in Atlanta this week to find ways to help struggling veterans as we hear from Jess Mador. The group, America's Warrior Partnership, worked with researchers at the University of Alabama and Duke to analyze the death data in eight states. 
Then they compared it to numbers from the military and the VA. They allege deaths from suicide, overdose, and other self-injury are undercounted and that the rate could be more than double the official federal count. The partnership, veterans, and advocates are gathering October 4th through the 6th in Atlanta to talk about suicide prevention strategies. Speakers are expected to include the VA's Director of Suicide Prevention and organizers from the Wounded Warrior Project. Jess Mador, WABE News. Georgia survivors of breast cancer, well, they're headed to the Gold Dome with state legislators today. They're pushing legislation this session to deal with issues surrounding cancer survivorship. Rain Stevens is a cancer survivor. She says people assume you'll just return to life as usual when you're cancer-free. There is no turning back to our previous way of life because of the physical and mental abuse the body has been subjected to during chemotherapy and radiation treatment. Now, Stevens went on to say she's pushing for legislation that would make it easier for cancer survivors to qualify for Social Security disability insurance. One bill that passed in the state house last session does require insurance to cover a breast breast cancer mammogram for women 40 years and older. A Georgia congressman wants to do away with a pandemic-era federal eviction rule. It requires certain landlords to give tenants 30 days' notice before filing evictions, as we hear from Dormaya Vance. Republican Representative Barry Loudermilk says his bill would return eviction laws to the states. The 30-day notice requirement started in 2020 with the CARES Act. That law banned landlords with government-backed loans from filing evictions for four months. The federal law expired, but the 30-day notice remained and is still in effect. Loudermilk says now that requirement should expire like other COVID-19 policies. He pointed to President Biden's recent comment that the pandemic is over. According to the National Housing Law Project, local judges have been mixed in their enforcement of the 30-day notice rule. Dormaya Vance, WABE News. And finally, it was a bittersweet weekend in sports for fans from college to the pros. First, here's some bitter. Atlanta United will not be in the playoffs for the Major League Soccer Championship this season. That's after losing to New England over the weekend 2-1. to one. It's the second time in the past three years that Atlanta failed to win enough games to make it to the playoffs. Now manager Gonzalo Pinata summed it up after the loss. The only thing I can tell you is at this moment, I'm very disappointed at not making playoffs. I've really felt before this game that we, we uh, with real chances of winning this game. This was Panada's first full year as the team's manager. The five stripes have one more game left in the season. That's against New York City FC. That'll be at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta on Sunday. Now, for some sweet, the Atlanta Falcons beat Cleveland thanks to a solid running game, kicker Youngway Koo, and the defense stepping up in the last minutes of the game. Brissett fires and it's intercepted. Picked off by D. Alford. Yay, the Falcons won. Meanwhile, the Atlanta Braves swept the Mets. That's always good. The Braves are in control, it appears, to snag another National League East title with one more win or a Mets loss. As for college football, Morehouse, Georgia Southern, and Kennesaw State, well, they lost. But Georgia State, Georgia Tech, UGA, barely against Missouri, and Clark Atlanta, they all won. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T.edu. And Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. From the leaking of that draft opinion to the eventual overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court has continued to face some intense criticism by the public and by politicians for the scope of its power. And that includes the biases of the judges themselves, reflecting a new conservative majority appointed throughout the Trump administration. Chief Justice John Roberts spoke about the aftermath of the decision and others at a September conference hosted by the U.S. Court of Appeals in Colorado. 
the court has always decided controversial cases. Uh, the decisions have always been subject to uh, intense criticism, um, and that is uh, entirely appropriate. Um, uh, that citizens feel free to criticize uh, our opinions and how we do our work. Uh, but lately, the criticism is phrased in terms of, you know, because of these opinions, it calls into question the legitimacy of the court. Um, and I think it's a mistake to view uh, uh, those criticisms in that light. But Robert's view is not held by another member of the bench, Justice Elena Kagan. A recent NPR report found three public appearances where Kagan argued the court has to earn its legitimacy, including this visit to Northwest University Pritzker School of Law. All of a sudden, everything is up for grabs. All of a sudden, very fundamental principles of law are being overthrown. Then people have a right to say, like, you know, what's going on there? That doesn't seem very lawlike. Well, let's turn to another landmark case, marking the first time the nation's high court weighed in on affirmative action. Alan Bucky, central figure in a major civil rights case, returning to his home in Los Altos, California tonight after winning his fight to enter medical school. I don't have any comment. I think it's just a reflection of what life is like in the United States today. It's a reflection of eight years of, of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, and it's a reflection of an American society which says we've given these people enough. Uh, they can sit in the front of the bus, they can sit downstairs in the movie theater, they can register to vote. Um, why aren't they happy with that? Uh, this will bring the civil rights movement back into focus where the majority of Americans can support it. And, and that's uh, going to be a real plus, I think, for the uh, long term in this country. My general view is that affirmative action has been enhanced. That's what I told the president. And he was pleased to know that. Uh, whether you lose five to four, uh, uh, eight to one, uh, uh, seven to zero, when it's all said and done in the ninth inning, you've lost a great decision. Those archival clips, courtesy of C-SPAN, you may recognize some, some familiar voices in that piece, of course, Dan, Dan Rather, Georgia State Senator Junior Bond, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Now, Alan Bakke sued that he was denied admission to the University of California Davis School of Medicine because of his race. He was white. Now, decades later, the Supreme Court is still hearing challenges regarding affirmative action. Described as an anti-affirmative action group, Students for Fair Admissions, well, they will have their lawsuits before the Supreme Court of the United States on October 31st. One against Harvard and one versus the University of North Carolina. So the justices will then weigh whether to ban the consideration of race in college admissions. As you just heard in archival clips, there is history regarding affirmative action policies and what the provisions were initially supposed to do and why there are still challenges. So early in the year, I spoke with Georgia State University's College of Law professor, Tanya Washington-Hicks. She's a regular contributor regarding all topics Supreme Court and constitutional law. Professor, thanks for taking the time. Glad to have you. Uh, it's great to be here, Rose. Let's begin here, as I always say. You're a fourth-generation educator, correct? Yes, actually fifth. Fifth. Growing up, what did you hear about education in terms of access and opportunity for Black Americans? What did you hear? Uh, it was incredibly important. My mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother were all educators as well. And so education was presented as a way to... Uh, maintain one's um, standing in society and to achieve social mobility. And so it was the bedrock of, you know, my upbringing um, and something that was prioritized in, in my family. You, your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother? And my great-grandmother. Tell me about your great-grandmother and what type of educator she was. She taught all of my um, maternal parents and grandparents taught um, elementary school. And so they were early childhood education, education um, folks. And my great-grandmother taught um, primary school, which is what it was called at the time. And so there was, you know, there were always books around. I was always encouraged to read. And, you know, it was a way of making sure that you were going to be successful in life. Your great-grandmother, her name? <sighs> Mother Gardner. That's Mo what we called her. Mother, Mother Gardner. Gardner. I imagine was teaching then during segregation? Yes, she was, um, her mother was, had been enslaved. Her father was the plantation owner. Um, and so she was one of those first generations post-slavery that was allowed to experience freedom. I don't want to shift from our conversation, but are you ever going to write her story? 
You know, I, I had not thought about it, Rose, but as, as we talk, it's a story that needs to be told. Because uh, I, I want to know more. she was, yeah. I am because she was. And I wanted to start with that, Professor, to lay out for some people, because I think sometimes when I have experts on and academics on, I think sometimes people think y'all don't have a personal story, you know, that there's no connection here. So that's what I wanted to start with that. And when we talk about affirmative action law and educate for our listeners, how the policy first, just the origin of how it came about, and I believe it came under President Kennedy, but how it came about, and what was the original purpose of having what we call affirmative action policy or a law here? Yes, it was instituted, as you said, Rose, under President Kennedy in an executive order, and he created a committee that was chaired by then Vice President um, Linda B. Johnson to actually oversee that order, and it was targeting racial discrimination against federal contractors. There was a lot of money and a lot of opportunities that Black contractors were locked out of by law, right? So we're talking about discrimination that didn't just involve how people feel, but being locked out of social, political rights, uh, economic opportunities. And so it was a bulwark against centuries of racial discrimination. And so in terms of equal access and opportunity, what did it mandate? What were the provisions here? The provisions prohibited discrimination against people on the basis of race, but it also affirmatively provided opportunities that they otherwise would not have had an opportunity to access. And we can imagine that folks probably, this is just for people of color or back then, because I use this word, Negroes, they probably thought this is just going to only apply to black folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we take a deeper dive into this, in terms of historically, What does data reveal about who has benefited from affirmative action policies? There have been a number of studies at the state level and at the federal level that show that white women have been the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action. And so the shift to gender access um, away from just racial access has definitely benefited that group. There's data out there and there needs to be more data that that doesn't just talk about gender, but talks about race within gender. But the data that's out there shows that white women have been the primary beneficiaries. And when it comes to affirmative action policies, particularly in higher education, how would you assess since then? And you can give it a grade. You're an academic, but (laughs) y'all always go further. You can give it a grade, but obviously you can add more context to it in terms of how it was implemented, what it was supposed to do, and have folks of color benefited too? I think some would say yes. I think that affirmative action, I would give it a C. Really? Um, Yes, because when it starts to actually achieve progress, there have been these fits and starts. So we move forward two spaces and then we move back three spaces. And a lot of that is because of the way that the court has narrowed over the years since the Baki case that you introduced the segment with um, was decided. In every case subsequent to that, there's been a narrowing of the way that you can use race. So it can't even achieve its intended purposes to the full extent possible. We have people fighting about affirmative action, but when you look at the statistics of Blacks, Indigenous students, and Latinos in institutions of higher ed, we're still significant minorities. And when we talk about, and I've had this conversation before, when we talk about the percentage, I want to focus on your area, the percentage of Black Americans, Black folks entering into law, and then also who are active attorneys within the legal field, it's extremely, it's a very, very low percentage. Yes. Um, there, if we don't have Black students admitted to higher ed, we are not going to have Black judges, Black professors, Black doctors, Black teachers, Black engineers. So it is going to have a significant and adverse impact on a lot of professions because we won't be in those spaces to be educated to do that work. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation from Georgia State University School of Law, Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks, and we're talking about affirmative action policies, law, what they were supposed to do and what they are doing and why they're still challenged. I want to continue what you just said because then there is there this misconception about affirmative action, who benefits. You just said, hist- based on what happens with the, and we're going to get into this too, the, the Supreme Court hearings that they're going to have soon, the outcome of that could determine in terms of not only just at higher education, but other areas 
in terms of equity and, and, and diversity and all of that. That's what you're saying? Yes. I mean, we just won't be there if we don't have Black, Indigenous, and Latino folks graduating from colleges and universities, which is a prerequisite for graduate school and professional school, you won't have Black, Latino, and Indigenous professionals. So you'll, on, you'll have the only person in courtrooms as the Black defendant. No Black judges, no Black prosecutors or defense attorneys. And that means our society is going to be um, devoid of all the contributions that professionals of color can make and have been making. For some listening, it says, well, then some believe states then should not have their own affirmative action policies, or perhaps this federal provisions should be the guiding factor. But we, of course, have all these challenges to it, to affirmative action now in terms of the nation's high court. So where's the balance here? Should each state sort of have their own policy or should there continue to be this federal provision? And perhaps that needs to be overhauled, but that takes an act of Congress. And I think racial diversity which facilitates educational diversity is important as a national priority. It affects our health, our economic health. It affects our security as a nation. And so we don't want a patchwork of laws, right? State by state where some states value and recognize educational diversity and others don't. We do need a national policy, but as the court prepares to render a decision on whether affirmative action will continue, that is in jeopardy. And and that decision will affect public and private colleges and universities across the nation. Professor, explain to our listeners why this is a 14th Amendment challenge. Yes. So the 14th Amendment is the Equal Protection Clause. And the argument that's being made um, by the plaintiffs, the parties challenging Harvard and University of North Carolina's policy is that they are being discriminated against because, or Asian Americans and white Americans are being discriminated against because seats are being given to Black and Latino students and Indigenous students that don't have the same scores. And so their rights are being violated to be treated equally under the law. So the reverse discrimination claim and the discrimination claim both fall within the ambit of the 14th Amendment. You said something I want to focus on because I think folks have heard that phrasing of reverse discrimination and people will argue, well, first of all, discrimination is discrimination. You can't reverse it. But you're when they use that argument, you're assuming that discrimination is because it only applies to black folks. And so when you say it's reverse, it's because of someone of another ethnicity or race. And that's just simply not the case. And I hope I didn't confuse anybody because I'm not a Right. Well, it's, it's interesting, Rose, the Baki decision that you talked about from 1978, where all of this kind of started mm-hmm. in terms of the court history. Um, the court made the observation that discrimination, whether it is for the purpose of harming and excluding or for the purpose of um, creating an opportunity is still going to be subject to what's called strict scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And that is the most exacting constitutional scrutiny where they take a very close look at it. They determined that not only Black folks and people of color are protected by the 14th Amendment, but white people are protected against racial discrimination as well. Is this what then those in North Carolina and and Harvard, those who are challenges, that's what they have to prove or make the argument to SCOTUS? Yes, they have to prove the universities that are on the defensive are going to have to prove that they have a constitutional, uh, constitutionally compelling justification for using race in their admissions policy. But if we go back to the Baki case, Professor Washington, the SCOTUS ruled that the University of California Davis School of Medicine did have the constitutional right to have a policy in a sense. It was like it was twofold. Well, the court allowed for the purposes of racial diversity, which facilitates educational diversity. It's Mm -hmm. an aspect of educational diversity, that that is the compelling interest. So then everything switched from remedial affirmative uh, action, curing the past, to diversity, which actually benefits everybody in the classroom. That then became, after Grutter and Fisher, the only reason that you can use race in admission. And Fisher was the University of Texas yes. lawsuit, correct? Mm-hmm. And for our yes. listeners, both just, of them, two of them. And that was a white woman, correct? Yes. So both Grutter mm-hmm. and the plaintiffs in Grutter and in Fisher 
versus Texas were white women plaintiffs challenging the use of race-based admissions policies. Given the current makeup of SCOTUS, how do you see this? What will be, through your lens, what could be the deciding factor for SCOTUS to rule in favor of North Carolina and Harvard based on these other cases we just talked about or maybe rule against? Well, in those cases that we talked about, um, Justice Thomas, Justice Rob, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito have made clear that they don't think race should be used at all for any reason. This case would present the perfect opportunity for them to overrule Grutter and say, you cannot use race conscious admissions policies, period. Instead of limiting how it's used, they can outlaw its use. And that is going to affect every public and private university that receives federal funds, which is all of them. The students get federal loans. You know, even if it's a private institution, they're receiving federal funding. So this is going to have a cataclysmic effect across the nation on colleges and universities if they do decide to overturn um, the landmark decision in Grutter recognizing racial diversity as a compelling constitutional goal. What do you think then the institutions will have to prove? I mean, we talked about data earlier. I don't know if this yeah. is where you bring in charts and reports. I think that these three justices and perhaps the three newest justices on the bench are prepared to overrule Bruder. And there is no data that these institutions can present to show that we need to continue using race-conscious policy. Chief Justice Roberts has made the statement that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And so he considers these policies to be antithetical to Brown versus Board of Education and to serve no good constitutional end. And so there's no data these schools can present to challenge that framework and that thought process if that's where the court wants to go. I have a listener who writes, well, then if what the professor just said about white women having benefited the most from affirmative action, wouldn't that be a a factor for the justice to consider if they're looking at this from a historical standpoint? They they could consider it, but a lot of um, even those that have supported um, affirmative action in the past are saying it has run its course. It has done what it needed to do and it is no longer necessary. Right. And so those that historical piece is not going to answer the 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 perspective that affirmative action is no longer necessary, just like the perspective of the court was that voting rights protections are no longer necessary. This is not just one case. This is a case that fits within a pattern that the court is um, pursuing in terms of make drawing a line in the sand and saying we need a colorblind society and that's going to start with a colorblind um, jurisprudence that does not allow or accommodate race conscious policies and practices. If you were arguing this case on behalf of the institutions, what would you focus on? I would focus on the harmful effects of the absence of affirmative action. I mean, if we think about it, it started as a way to respond to pervasive and widespread and systemic racial discrimination. That reality still exists. And even with the most robust affirmative action programs, we still see abysmal numbers in terms of Black, Latino, and Indigenous students. So without any programmatic initiatives, we are going to see all white classrooms and all white universities. And I don't think that's good for our society and our nation, given that we are such a diverse population. We don't want everyone educated to be white. When we started this conversation, you talked about being a fifth generation educator. You talked about your great grandmother. When you think about what she was trying to do and you think about now, what's the correlation here? Make that connection. Yeah, I mean, my mom wanted to attend FSU in Tallahassee, but She couldn't because they didn't admit Black people. So she went to Howard University, which was a great institution. But I'm the first in my family to have benefited 
from policies that stand in opposition to racial discrimination. So it's not about letting people in who are not qualified. It's about letting people in who would otherwise be denied the opportunity because of a systemic racialized policy of excluding Black, Latino, and Indigenous people. And you went to Harvard Law School, correct? I did. I attended University of Maryland Law School and then went on to Harvard for my LLM. And I think my students would miss out on a, on a lot in, in the classes that I teach um, and in classes that are taught by other professors of color. It, and that's going to be more of a reality if we see the court ending all affirmative action. From Georgia State University's College of Law, Professor Tanya Washington-Hicks, Thank you so much for taking the time and being a part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. Compelling conversation. Yes, yes. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate it. And we dedicate this to your great-grandmother. Absolutely, Mother Gardner. Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, regarding that last segment, we are working to bring some other perspective to this, so keep listening to Closer Look. Some news now regarding a WABE investigation report from our reporter, Stephanie Stokes. Now, this goes back to regarding those deplorable conditions of the Forest Cove apartments in southeast Atlanta. So it appears the last of over 200 households of Forest Cove, well, that's in South. East Atlanta. Well, they've been moved from the property to new residents. Now, that's according to a statement just out from Mayor Andre Dickens saying, quote, this is a historic milestone for the families of Forest Cove who have been left behind for too many years, close quote. And also, it reads, under an agreement that Mayor Dickens negotiated earlier this year, the complex will be rehabilitated to create safe, quality housing in Thomasville Heights to allow the residents to return to the neighborhood. And WABE will have more on this later during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burrs. Now to this. Recently, a collective of Fulton County mayors turned to town hall meetings to express and garner support from residents regarding how shares of the county's local option sales tax or lost revenues are and will continue to be divvied up. At the core of this is about $3 billion dollars give or take a few bucks. Now, as it stands, Fulton County receives just under 5%. Actually, it's about 4.9% of the lost revenues, and the city's split 95% based on some other factors. Now, the county, well, they want a bigger slice of the pie, citing the need for services that they provide. So let's dig a little deeper. I'm now joined by City of East Point Mayor Dina Holliday-Ingram and from Sandy Springs, Mayor Rusty Paul. Thank you both for taking the time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, all right, let's get to this. Um, before we dig into the disagreement, I, I want to set up the process. So, Madam Mayor, just quickly, what services does your city receive from the county? What services does our city receive from the county? Um, so there's some courts. So the court system is mm-hmm. operated by the county. Um, we also have some other intergovernmental agreements with the county to provide services that we pay for. Um, but the services that the county provides all cities within this county that are not permissible under the law to be provided by laws are provided by the county through the property taxes that we all pay as residents mm-hmm. within Fulton County to the county as well as to the city and, and the school board. And the county gets a very large share of the county, the property taxes that every okay. resident in Fulton right. County we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I wanted folks to understand what services that they provide. Uh, Mayor Rusty Paul, what about you? What are those services? Well, yeah, same. I mean, it's courts, jail, sheriff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those that level. Uh, we fund the county commissioners uh, and they vote on on setting policy for the county. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, we're all residents and, and enjoy a certain level of service. But what we're really focusing on are 14 particular uh, powers called supplementary powers mm-hmm. that the state legislature has said these lost funds can go to fund. Mm-hmm. The only thing that uh, they could uh, use these lost monies for would be for uh, health related, maybe mm-hmm. to Grady and some things like that. And the cities have acknowledged that uh, we're willing to help out with uh, with their challenges at Grady, particularly in light of the closing of the hospital in East Point and also uh, the uh, Wellstar Center there, what, what I always knew is Georgia Baptist there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's going to clearly make some shifts. And the cities are, have, have said, yeah, we understand and we're willing to step up. But 
what the county's asking us to give up from from revenues that we use for police and fire and our, our emergency ambulance services and 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 the basic municipal services that we all get would make would force us to do one of two things either cut those services back sure. or raise our property taxes but uh, in east point and sandy springs we can't do that and so uh, that just leaves a huge hole in our budgets and and i know mayor holiday ingram you know has uh, she's she knows exactly what's going to happen in her city all right let's back up a little bit because i don't want to get too far i want folks to understand the process and how we got here mayor rusty paul let me stay with you because historically regarding lost how have the terms been negotiated there are some 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 provisions here right in terms right. of the share right every 10 years the 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 statute that in powered the voters to approve the sales tax that, that we're talking about, local option sales tax, mm-hmm. that's what law stands for. Every 10 years, based on population shifts and other changes that have occurred in the but uh, in the cities and the county, and every county, all 159 counties are going through this right now, mm-hmm. though it's a little bit more complex in Fulton County, but we have to renegotiate the uh, uh, rates every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Fulton is different. It is 99% municipalized. A lot of counties have only one city or Mm -hmm. two cities or a handful of cities, and the county provides a lot of different services. In Fulton, it's different because we are almost 100% municipalized. So all these services like police, fire, ambulance, parks, recreation, trails, all these things are done by municipalities, not Mm -hmm. by the county. So that's why Fulton is a bit unique. And so, uh, Madam uh, Mayor, Fulton County now wants a bigger percentage than this 4.98 to the tune of what? What's that percentage increase? So the the last offer we have from them goes up to 19%. They initially started at 35%, which is a 600% increase from the 5% they have now. And the population in the county, in the unincorporated areas, it makes up 0.08% of the population. So there's 889 people that live in 1.62 square miles mm-hmm. in unincorporated Fulton County. Yet the county initially requested a 600%, and now the range is between 7% up to 19% over a 20-year period. Again, we're providing all of the services, right? So the the core services to our residents, and none of the the requests, so the the county jail that the county talks about, that is not one of the allowed uses for lost funds under supplementary powers. There are 14 and that's not one of the 14. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we continue to try to educate and inform and empower our residents to understand what's at stake is very important because as Mayor Paul said, if in fact the county gets its way, there will be either a reduction of services or increase in sales taxes, excuse me, property taxes at the local level. And the county is saying, well, if you know, the cities on increased property taxes and will have to increase property taxes. Well, the county just rolled back their millage, right? Mm-hmm. And reduce their property taxes, but still saying they need all of this funding for services that should come from a pool of money that the that is not allowed to be used on what they want to use it for. And so, you know, it, it's unfortunate that we find ourselves in this situation. You know, other counties like Clayton have already reached an agreement and mm-hmm. said, we'll just keep it as it is. But we are here. Mayor Paul, I want to go back to you for a moment, because when did the most when did these negotiations begin? Because you all have till only till December 30th right. to get this done. The, when did y'all start? Well, the the law gives the state law that empowers this particular revenue source sets a negotiating timetable. Mm-hmm. It can start. And we did on July 1 of this year. And it's a six month negotiating uh period and there's two months of negotiation then you go into mediation and or arbitration which are Mm non-binding uh we are in the mediation phase right now we've completed one session of mediation we have another session of mediation and i hope your listeners will we're going to stream it so i hope your listeners will watch and see how these negotiations go because we're we're talking about public money here and the Mm -hmm. public's been somewhat excluded because the county has refused to meet in public to discuss these things but we've decided the cities, all 15, have decided we will stream it so that the voters and the citizens can see the discussions going on about their money. It's not our money. It's not the county's money. It's the citizens' money and how the, each group poses to spend it. So I hope they do participate. 
And we should note, Closer Look has been in touch with Fulton County, and we will either have Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts or another commissioner on to also give their side of this. Now, mayors, according to the county, by law, they can collect this tax. And as Chairman Rob Pitts has been arguing, he says Fulton needs the money to keep serving you all, the cities, and citing population growth as part of that. So can you understand a listener saying, okay, there are more people in your cities, which may require uh, more services, hiring more personnel. What's your response to that, Madam Mayor? The county is not providing those services. We are. So you're right. We did see population growth in the city of East Point, but we are providing police, fire, um, ambulance service, parks and recreation, all of the services that the, the county is saying that we're in need of more of, we're providing it, which is why we need to keep what we have and or if there's going to be increases on the city side, because again, the county only has 0.08% of the population and is still asking for drastically more than that. I mean, it's. No, go ahead. Finish. I, I, you know, I, I think it's laughable. The county's position is also couched in double counting or cloning. Right. So they say, well, a million over a million people live in Fulton County and over a million people live in the cities. So that means we're serving like over 2 million people. And unless the county has figured out how to clone people, this this aggregate counting, double counting, and Mayor Paul always um, jokes, and I, Mayor, I'll say it and you can chime in, but we all can ride in the HOV lane because I can be in my car and I re- I'm two people, right? So, I mean, the argument is, is really couched in a lot of what we feel is wrong interpretations of the law. Mayor Paul, what do you respond to how do you respond to when you hear chairman pitt say the bottom line is let's keep it your population has increased but your share of loss our share of losses look we need more money to provide those services that's what they're saying well let me go back to something that mayor holiday ingram said if the county really needed that much money why have they been cutting their millage rate and shifting the burdens more and more to to the cities to carry on these things but the, the, the key thing to remember is that every opportunity that the residents of fulton county have had over the last 20 years whether it's in north fulton or south fulton if they had the opportunity to create a city, they did it because they believe that cities can provide better services at lower cost. And the same, you know, in, we just saw Cobb County, there were three counties there that had the opportunity to create a city. They said, no, we're perfectly fine with the county services we're getting. So the voters have already said in Fulton County that we would prefer to have our services provided by cities and to be able to, to provide the level of service they need. This this revenue source is vital. It's crucial to our ability to live up to the promises that we've all made to our constituents in the cities of Fulton County. This county says, look, demand is growing for all Fulton County services, health and public safety. In fact, they say these services are near crisis levels, hospital, courts and jails, mental health crisis. You all say it's not that bad. It's not at crisis level. No, what we're saying is that, yeah, the courts are a mess, but they put $70 million already out of the federal funds into the court system. And we've seen no real appreciable increase in the amount of of, of convictions or trials or anything else that's going on. And they've already spent $70 million of federal money that they were supposed to split with the cities back in the in the day, which they chose not to do. The jail is is a real problem. Healthcare, but they can't use they can't use loss to build a jail. Mm-hmm. They can use it for Grady, and we have already said we'll help with Grady. M- Madam Mayor, Rusty Paul alluded to this earlier, and he said, you know, if let's say the percentage is increased, perhaps your city would suffer more. And we all, I think, we should know that in North and South Fulton cities, there are some differences in terms of. Uh, there are a lot of optics around services. There's a lot of optics around, uh, you know, taxes. And, and the demographics are, are, are different, let's be really clear. If this does increase, what damage, what burden does this put on your city, the city of East Point? If the county receives more money to provide less services to cities, then that means we're going to either have to reduce the level of public safety we provide because we provide police and fire so when someone dials 911 east point police and east point fire show up Mm -hmm. it either means we're doing that or we're going to have to increase our millage rate and the city of east point like 
um, Sandy Springs, Milton, and Johns Creek, we have millage rate caps in our charter. So that means right now our mill millage rate is about 13.25. Our cap is 15. In order to give the county more money for less services, we would have to increase our millage rate. And some of the asks of the county would require us to go above 15 mills, which means mm -hmm. we would have to go to the legislature and do a charter amendment to increase our millage rate, not to provide additional services, but so the county can get more money to provide services or to cover costs that are outside of what the law provides. Mm -hmm. And so the county has this position of wanting to ignore what the law says and say, well, we know that's the law, but this is how we feel. So we shouldn't do that. We should do what we feel. It's kind of like speeding. You know you can get to a place quicker if you go beyond the speed limit. But when you go beyond the speed limit, you also run the risk of causing injury and harm to others. And the county's position of ignoring the law is absolutely going to put us in a position where it's going to cause harm to our residents in that we're either reducing service or increasing property taxes. Bear Paul, same issues or a different set of issues for you if Fulton County gets a bigger piece of this here? No, it, it puts all 15 cities mm -hmm. uh, in in the same pot. And while I represent Sandy Springs and Dina represents East Point, the city that would be the most drastically affected is the city of Atlanta. It's mm -hmm. $150 million a year in their budget. It, it's, uh, it's over a billion and a half dollars over the 10-year period to the city of Atlanta at a time when the mayor is desperately trying to hire police officers and the county's putting the city of Atlanta's safety, uh, you know, initiatives that the mayor's working real hard to get additional police officers, yet the county would be reducing the amount of money available to Mayor Dickens to be able to hire those officers. Mm -hmm. So that's, it, it affects all of us, but it affects Atlanta even worse. Is there a magic number, a compromise number Mayor Dina Halliday-Inger, I'm looking at you with this smile. You're shaking head, but I'm not going to read into that because I won't give you the opportunity to just answer that question. Is there a compromise here? So, look, we have been engaging in good faith negotiations with the county. And, you know, we understand in reaching an agreement, that means either side may not get everything that they want. However, we have to reach an agreement where no one is harmed, right, where there is a hold harmless where the city, the 15 cities that are standing united remain whole. And if there's a way that the county can show us that they're actually going to do, provide more services that are within the supplementary powers, then maybe, but we we, we can't have this, you know, position of, well, we got to sign off and you all might just need to prepare for life after loss, which is what was said in one of the negotiations. Life after loss for me, if this goes away, it's over $12.5 million in our budget, and we would have to increase our um, millage rate by over eight mils. Like, that is ridiculous. So you've given me those numbers, but you didn't give me the number for the question I asked. Is there a, is there a, is there a number? You're saying not even a, a smidgen over 4.98%, not 6%, not 10%. Well, we're we're in negotiations, so I'm not going to go on public air and, and say what a number may be, nor be able to suggest that I'm speaking for all 15. Seasons. Well, what works for range, you? The range, the range that we've been talking about is something in the range of five to 15 percent, not meaning that that's going to be the minimum or the maximum. OK, but for a negotiation room. Mayor Paul, your number. Well, my number is that, uh, you know, we've got it. We've got to find something that works, that holds every city harmless. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do if more if more money's going to the counties. And we've got 15 United Cities. Mayor Dickens is with us, uh, and Mayor Clark Bodie of Palmetto, and even Jim Steele, the mayor of Mountain Park, which is the smallest city in yes, it is. in Fulton County. They're all we're we're all in 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 unison on this. And and the reason these negotiations are so fractious and so difficult right now is the legislature gave the county a veto. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, Chairman Pitts has already threatened to use that veto to. And in other words, it used to be 51 percent of the population could agree to a number and that was it. Mm -hmm. Now, if the county do, isn't happy, they can just say, hey, cities, we're just going to pull this funding from you. And they have that unilateral power. And that's what's making these negotiations. And it's been threatened, as Dina said, that's what's making these negotiations so but difficult. Can right you now. live? Can your citizens and maybe you're thinking of this in terms of all the cities and not just you. Do you feel like in between that five and maybe 15 percent that Madam Mayor mentioned, that is doable? 
I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. But okay. here's the problem. We're in a period of high inflation right now. Mm -hmm. The inflation rate in the metro Atlanta area most recently was reported at 9.1%. If we hold the cities harmless and there is no increase in revenue over the next 10 years with inflation, hopefully not staying that level for the whole 10 years. But if it does, the buying power of the money that under the county's proposal dwindles to near zero at the end of 10 years. And I don't think that's acceptable to anybody. So that's what's, uh, you know, so there's a number out there, but we're nowhere close to getting it yet. Well, you know, and let me be clear that I'm not saying that my number is 15. In fact, as a city that would have to be a, do a charter amendment, my number is much lower. I, right? I, I got but that. Publicly, yeah. <laughs> publicly, what has been shared in previous, you know, press releases and communication with the public is this idea of between that range. So when is the next everybody come to the table meeting? Friday morning Friday, at 10 o'clock. Yep. 10 o'clock Friday. We're streaming it. Uh, we have a web, we have a website called save, uh, Fulton cities.com. And, uh, and I hope people will go to it and, uh, they can read all about this on, on that website. And I may have given it the, the wrong one, but it's, it's close to that. So we'll make sure we get <laughs> it right. Now, yeah. now let me ask you all this. So then with Friday's meeting, will that be it? That's where you have to come. You, you're hoping to come to some agreement or this could go to something else. The, the deadline is December 30th. We'll yeah. com conclude mediation this week and then continue, I guess, to talk until midnight on December 30th. And if we don't have an agreement, then these revenues evaporate. They go away and it'll have an immediate impact on all of our cities and all of the police and fire and everything else we've talked about. Madam Mayor, I give you the last word. When Mayor Paul says they go away, what do you mean they go away? $12.5 million goes away from East Point's budget. And over $300 million will go away from the 15 cities' budgets across this county. And we'd have to figure out, again, how to either replace those revenues or cut service. City of East Point Mayor Dina Holliday-Ingram and from Sandy Springs, Mayor Rusty Paul. And again, we will have someone on from Fulton County, hopefully next week, regarding this. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you thank for you. having us both. Thank you, Rose, so much. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for today was Daniel. By the way, he rides a bike, too. I don't know what it's with the engineers and riding bikes, but I guess it's a thing. I don't know. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And I am not against bike riding, so don't send me an email because y'all hear something and there you go. If you missed any of today's show, you can find the entire program at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And by the way, I am getting a new bike. It's going to be a hybrid. So just y'all chill. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.